Raid. Estelle Essie Rosenowicki sees a commercial for Freshident Cool Mint Teeth Whitening Toothpaste on television. Her mother sits beside her on the couch, scanning the classifieds for personal ads and the Sunday insert for supermarket coupons. In the commercial, a slew of unattractive, yellow-molared women brush their teeth fervently with lesser brands of teeth whitening toothpaste and stare at themselves, ashamedly, in the mirror. They spit, observe their still hazard sign yellow teeth, and weep, inconsolably, into the sink. Then, a beautiful, buxom brunette appears. She has shimmery clothes and piercing eyes and gorgeous blue iridescent wings which flutter as she applies freshened cool mint toothpaste to her brush. The yellow mullard women, whose wings are muted shades of brown and orange, stare at the brunette with jealousy and awe. The background music swells with timpani, harps, and a boy's choir, and the brunette brushes, spits, smiles, her gums gleaming, her teeth luminous and spotless. Freshident, she says, show the world your sparkle. Her teeth glimmer and shine, and so do her wings, impossibly blue, their iridescent color dancing across the television screen, blotting out the dull-winged women behind her. Essie's mouth is open, idolatrous. She tugs on her mother's shirt. Look, Mommy, says Essie, pointing to the screen. Those are the wings I want when I grow up. Shiny and blue, just like Mrs. Freshident. Mrs. Freshident? What makes you think she's married, says Essie's mom, not looking up from the personal ads. I've never seen a Mr. Freshident. Essie's mom's wings are drab and brown. Drabness and brownness run in her side of the family. Because her wings are so pretty, says little Essie, and her teeth are so sparkly and white. Fourth grade, family life class. Essie's classmate Gabriella haltingly reads aloud a passage from What Is This Thing Called Puberty as the other girls follow along, riveted, and the boys scribbled labeled diagrams of genitalia inside their desks. Chapter 2 reads Gabriella, Our Changing Bodies. In the coming years, your body will undergo many changes. If you are a boy, you will grow much taller. Your voice will deepen. You will grow hair where there was no hair before. If you are a girl, your hips will become wider. Your breasts will develop. You will menstruate. Also, most noticeably, you will start to sprout your wings. Below the text, on page 23, there is a color illustration of a pubescent girl's naked back, tiny blue winglets sprouting between her shoulder blades. Essie runs a finger across the water-colored winglets, marveling. Her classmate, Maricela, raises her hand. How come girls get wings and boys don't? Maricela asks the teacher. Essie knows the answer. Her mother told her. Boys don't get wings because they're too stupid not to fly directly into ceiling fans, or helicopter blades, or the sun. But the teacher doesn't say this. She says it's just how God made us. Now, says the teacher, who wants to read the next paragraph? Several girls' hands shoot up. 
The teacher calls on Anna Maria, and the girls drop their hands. The boys continue their covert anatomical scribblings. These changes can be scary, Anna Maria reads. They can be uncomfortable, and even painful, but they are a natural part of growing up. They are normal. They happen to everyone. The girls follow along, hanging on every word. Essie caresses the illustration of the wings. The boys skip ahead to the next chapter, what makes a girl a girl, and carve into their desks the mons pubis, the vulva, the labia majora and minora. Anna Maria keeps reading from chapter 2, Our Changing Bodies, and when she gets to the bold-faced definition of pubescence, the teacher catches one of the boys mid-clitoris and writes him a referral to the office. Essie keeps gazing at the illustrated wings, enviously, imagining them sprouting on her own shoulders, iridescent, blue, flawless, just like those of Mrs. Freshident. She says a quick prayer to God, thanking him for making her a girl, for letting her grow wings. The teacher examines the inside of the boy's desk and discovers crude etchings of external genitalia everywhere, as well as curse words, some misspelled, and the boy's name again and again. The boy throws his hands in the air, claiming innocence, feigning surprise. The class waits silently. The teacher gazes at the section of the referral form labeled Reason for Referral and finds herself at a complete loss as to what to write. Now this, she thinks, as she observes the referral form, then the boy's prodigious body of work, the curse words, the phalluses, the clefts of Venus and the mons pubis surrounded by his signatures, is why boys don't get wings. Fourth grade, second quarter, Essie's friend Celia is the first girl in their grade to get her wings. During spelling, Celia borrows a scissors, cuts two holes in the back of her shirt, and there they are, small, still budding, but definitely there, exotically dark violet, a highly desired hue. The effect is nothing short of sensational. Girls, catching glimpses of the wings out of the corners of their eyes, misspell the simplest words. Vowels are dropped. Silent G's are added. Last year's third grade spelling bee champ inexplicably appends two extra N's to bacon. During lunch, the commotion grows, girls crowding around Celia, jostling each other for position, offering hot dogs, applesauce, Doritos for the privilege of sitting next to her. A boy passes by, spies the wings, and throws up. The custodian arrives, mops up the vomit, and congratulates Celia on becoming a young woman. From this day forward, Essie checks her own back every morning as soon as she wakes up. She runs her fingers along her spinal column, between her shoulder blades, probing for any gnashant protuberance, any slight change in topography. As the quarter progresses, more of her classmates get their wings. Anna Maria, Yancy, Bianca, Mercedes, and the excitement dies down. 
the novelty wears off, the fourth graders growing accustomed to seeing tiny winglets poking out of holes in their classmates' shirts. But not for Essie. It's all she thinks about, all she dreams about. Wings of her own, iridescent and blue, like the wings of Mrs. Freshident, of the girl in what is this thing called puberty. Meanwhile, Celia's wings triple, quadruple in size, and she receives administrative permission to wear the open back, draped back, tie back shirts that allow her wings total unencumbered mobility and serve as an undeniable sartorial symbol of her blossoming womanhood. The other girls idolize her. The boys are terrified of her. Essie sees less and less of her, Celia choosing to spend her time with her winged friends, the wingless brushed aside, shut out of birthday parties, camping trips, sleepovers. Essie's hand slipped inside her shirt, up her back, explores the contours of her spine, but she discovers nothing new. The boys scribble uteruses and ovaries. The girls flap their wings and make the boys' pencils fall to the floor. A classmate reads aloud from What Is This Thing Called Puberty, Chapter 5, Am I Normal? And in front of Essie, Celia's wings catch the incoming sunlight and sparkle. Sixth grade. By now, every girl's wings are sufficiently formed to allow flight-related women's sports in gym class, hoverball, flutterball, aerial tennis, every girl, except Essie. She still has yet to sprout even the tiniest winglet. She goes to the family doctor and is prescribed patience. She speaks with her parish priest and is told to contemplate God's mystery through prayer. She pleads with her gym teacher in his office, but is told that his hands are tied regarding the school's physical education requirement, and she's going to have to participate in ground sports with the hateful, gravity-bound boys. The boys, previously terrified of the wings, are terrified no longer. Now, in class, instead of scribbling reproductive organs inside their desks, they succumb to the wings' hormonal allure, staring, dreaming, drooling, fantasizing about Celia's dark violet and Bianca's swirling fractal patterns to the clear detriment of scholastic achievement. In class, in the cafeteria, in the halls, Essie notices how some of the girls, aware of the power their wings hold over the boys, have learned to wield their wings as sexual weapons, to hover suggestively, flap seductively, punctuate their speech with a well-timed flutter that causes the boys to fall over, lose consciousness, walk into walls. But Essie holds no such power. The only time the boys notice Essie is in gym class, when they pelt her with dodgeballs, tennis balls, shuttlecocks, taking out their frustration with not being able to fly on the one girl their age who can't soar away from them. Ninth grade. Still wingless, Essie enrolls in the local public high school. 
used to being the brunt of jokes and gossip in her middle school, Essie hopes that in the packed, overcapacity corridors of high school, she can at least become anonymous, and for the most part, she does. She doesn't raise her hand in class. She dresses unobtrusively, like a boy. She makes no friends, but also no enemies. Less lucky is the one other flightless freshman, the penguin girl. Unlike Essie, the penguin girl actually has wings, but they are deformed and stunted. There is an official medical term for her condition, but no one cares to learn what it is. Acutely self-conscious, the penguin girl usually covers up her crippled wings with heavy sweatshirts, even in the sweltering heat of the late summer, but in gym class they are bared for all to see, protruding inelegantly from her back like two tumorous growths, and this gives her classmates all the ammunition they need to relentlessly savage her. They write vicious untruths about her on bathroom stalls. They imitate the futile flapping of flippers. They loudly squawk whenever she passes them in the halls. Essie empathizes with the penguin girl, but she makes no effort to strike up a friendship. She knows any association with the class freak will undoubtedly bring the days of her hard-fought anonymity to an end. Still, Essie is not cruel to the penguin girl. She doesn't pelt her with dodgeballs or shuttlecocks. She doesn't squawk at her in the halls. Most significantly, she doesn't even refer to her as the Penguin Girl, instead calls her by her real name. Her real name is Belita, but the Penguin Girl is so unused to hearing her name that when Essie says it, the Penguin Girl assumes she's speaking to someone else. 10th grade. To earn some money for college, Essie gets an after-school job at Hassan's Artificial Limbs, Brazilian Jeans, and Pastries. Surprisingly, especially to her, she is a natural saleswoman. Women, gorgeous Latinas, enter Hassan's, desperate for jeans that don't sag in the seat or ride up in the crotch or make them look fat, and Essie says, yes, I can help you. She guides them to the moletone pants, hanging on racks by the wall, and expertly explains how the unique cotton and lycra weave of the fabric enhances their figures, flattens their abs, allows for greater flexibility of movement, and conforms to their body's curves. She helps them select the perfect pair, and the women retreat to the dressing room. When they emerge and stare at themselves in the mirror, their jaws drop in disbelief. See, says Essie, her smiling face reflected beside theirs in the mirror. See, you are beautiful. And then the amputees enter. Men, women, children, arms sheared off by combine harvesters, legs lost to infection, diabetes, landmines, soldiers returning in pieces from Iraq and Essie gently assists them over to the artificial limbs and discusses in great detail all the available options. Carbon fiber, myoelectrics, titanium, aluminum, laser-guided measuring. She helps them select the most appropriate model, removes the sample from the wall, and then takes them too to the mirror, holding up the sample to their stump. See, she says, See, you are beautiful, with the same gusto, the same sales girl 
smile. Hassan's artificial limbs, Brazilian jeans, and pastries is owned and operated, no surprise, by Hassan, an Iranian immigrant who enjoys warm weather, beautiful women, and heated games of backgammon with Orhan, his store's Turkish pastry chef. He is more than capable of running his store himself, but he likes having Essie around in the afternoon so he can concentrate on his backgammon. Backgammon, when Hassan is playing it, is a spectacle. He slams the table. He pulls out his hair. He consumes mass quantities of pastries and clutches his stomach in pain while contemplating his next move. Essie is not clear on the rules of backgammon, but she can tell whenever Hassan is losing because he smashes pastries with his fist and spews profanities in Farsi. She also cannot speak Farsi, but she can tell from Orhan's reaction, hands over his ears, eyes closed, mouth agape, that whatever Hassan is saying is more likely than not profane. When business is slow, and Hassan is too entranced in his backgammon to assign Essie any odd jobs, redressing the mannequins, reposing the prosthetic hands. Essie likes to step outside and chat with Charles and Winston, the friendly, middle-aged, hyper-intelligent homeless men who spend every day of the year on the cigarette-butt-infested curb outside the store. Charles and Winston, at first glance, appear to be like any other homeless men, their clothes ragged, their faces soiled, their unwashed bodies pungent in the tropical heat, but Essie has discovered that they possess a comprehensive knowledge of international finance, and often when she visits them with a sack of day-old pastries, eclairs, chocolate torts, napoleons, piroshki, baklava, she finds their noses buried in scavenged editions of the Wall Street Journal, aggressively playing the fantasy stock market. If I had $10,000, I'd invest it all in China, says Charles to Winston, as Essie brings them both sweet rolls. Chinese telecommunications, Chinese petroleum, America is done, old hat. Look at this curb, look at these cigarette butts. This neighborhood has gone to hell. You remember this street five years ago? Much nicer, says Winston. More people, more glamour, more discarded but still usable mattresses. Less cigarette butts. Exactly, says Charles. See? China. Essie hands the homeless men the sweet rolls, and they devour them within seconds. She doesn't know where they got their food from before she started working here, but right now she's pretty sure their personal food pyramids skew pretty heavily toward whichever food group includes fried dough and cream filling. Now, if I had $50,000, says Charles, wiping his sugary fingers on the journal stock tables, then half would go to China, half would go to crude oil, Exxon, Conoco, commodities pools, futures, the USO, black gold, they call it. Did you see the price of unleaded gasoline today? No, says Winston. I forget to look, on account of not having a car. But I can imagine. I can imagine it costs a pretty penny. And if I had a hundred thousand dollars, says Charles, shaking the Wall Street Journal excitably, one third would go to China, one third to crude oil, and the last third to bonds. You'd be a fool not to diversify your stocks with bonds. Steady, 
predictable, resilient. If I had $100,000, that's what I'd do. What if you had $5, asks Essie, in between bites of baklava. If you had $5, what would you do? Charles thinks for a moment. He thinks some more. He looks at the NASDAQ, the Dow, the S&P 500. He looks at the crumbs from his Armenian sweet roll on the stock tables. I get some donuts, he says. Simple, classic, American. None of this European crap. Maybe with filling. Maybe without. Depends on my mood. Could go either way. Me too, says Winston. Powdered sugar or chocolate. Glazed. Less expensive, but less return. Investment. Sprinkles. Always a possibility. And Essie reaches into her pocket, pulls out two crumpled $5 bills, and places them tenderly in the dirt-covered hands of the homeless men. They stare at the legal tender, caress it with their fingers, admire Abraham Lincoln's portrait, the Secretary of the Treasury's signature, the billowing banner declaring, In God We Trust, and then make off down the street for their favorite donut shop as Essie returns to Hassan's to check on the backgammon, on the form-fitting jeans, and the artificial limbs. Eleventh grade. 
Essie returns from work to her home in Bellissima Villas, an ungated apartment complex in the strip mall siege suburbs. She is greeted, as always, by the wrinkling, self-fanning abuelas who enjoy lounging outside in uncomfortable patio chairs and spreading shakily substantiated gossip over Cuban coffee. Essie herself is only half Hispanic, courtesy of the father she has never known, but she knows enough Spanish to understand that whenever the abuelas speak to her, their sole purpose for conversation is to assure Essie of their unwavering diligence in praying to the saints and the Blessed Virgin for an immaculate sprouting of her wings. Every day I light a candle to la Virgen de la Caridad, Niñita, says one abuela, as Essie approaches the stairs to her apartment with a sack of leftover pastries, so that your wings may be beautiful and symmetrical like my daughter Lucita's. Por favor de Dios. Two candles, says another abuela. Two candles I light to San Jose de Cupertino, patron saint of the aviators, mi vida, so that one day you too may fly, like my darling granddaughter Rosa, con la ayuda del padre Torporoso. Three candles, says another, brazenly, as if in beatific, wax-melting competition with the rest. Three candles, calabacita, to Santa Teresa de los Andes, so that you may be entered by the Holy Spirit and cured of this terrible affliction, at last, in el nombre de Jesucristo, la vida del mundo. Great, wonderful, says Essie, in English, hurrying up the stairs. It warms my heart to be responsible for so many potential fire hazards. Essie and her mother have lived in Bellissima Villas since Essie was a small child, an arrangement Essie has always found to be rather curious, as her mother speaks no Spanish. Nearly everyone else in the apartment complex is foreign-born, from Colombia, Venezuela, Honduras, Cuba, but Essie's mother is fourth-generation Polish-American, originally from Cleveland. Despite having lived in Bellissimovias for 12 years and having conceived Essie with a Panamanian, Essie's mother adamantly refuses to learn her neighborhood's de facto official language, and as a result, remains detached and aloof from her neighbors, who freely gossip about her in their native tongues as she passes by, knowing she won't understand. Essie's mother shares a faith with her neighbors, Catholicism, but little else. If she needs to ask a neighbor to turn down their radio or quit letting their dog relieve himself on her doorstep, she has to do so through the neighborhood children, who, unlike their parents, speak both English and Spanish fluently. About her Panamanian father, Essie knows very little. She's never seen his picture, can only extrapolate what he might have looked like by looking at herself in the mirror, seeing where her mother's Eastern European features diverge from her own. Her mother has dated ever since Essie was a little girl. Co-workers, blind dates, random men from bars. But the relationships never last long, and often when Essie enters their apartment after work, she finds her mother reading the personal ads even when she is currently with someone, in the likely event that tomorrow will find her, once again, alone. Southern gentleman, says a personal, seeks Southern Belle, 21 to 50, sexy, mature, intelligent, honest, real. 
must have nice wings. Now a junior in high school, Essie is still anonymous, still friendless, but what she lacks socially at school, she compensates for at Hassan's, where she still works every afternoon. Besides the homeless men, who she still visits and feeds every day, and of course Hassan and Orhan, Essie makes friends with the store's most loyal customer, Sanjita Sen, a PhD candidate in gender and sexuality studies from the local university, who is doing her dissertation on narrative conventions in online hardcore pornography and their socio-psychological implications, and is a huge fan of Orhan's pistachio baklava. One thing I've noticed, says Sanjita, in the store, between bites of baklava, is that in hardcore pornographic narratives, whenever pizza delivery is involved, it is always the man delivering pizza to the woman. It is always the man in uniform, biceps bulging, boxed pie piping hot, and the woman waiting expectantly, listening eagerly for the bell, her purse at the ready for payment, for the tip. Now, why do you suppose this is? Because of the sausage, says Hassan, curtly, clearly irritated with his backgammon concentration being broken. Would you like some sausage? How about a meat lover's? Fourteen inches of burning hot pepperoni? Things of this nature. This is why the man always delivers the pizza. I consider that, says Sanjita, but conversely, the pizza delivery woman could just as easily utilize the conolingual analogy to similar comedic and erotic effect. How about a taste? Finger looking good. Are you going to eat here, or do you want to eat out? So clearly, this is not the only reason. I think it cuts much deeper, deep into the male psyche, bespeaks a biological and or cultural need to dominate to initiate, to deliver, while the female passively receives, pays, tips. They give you a degree for this, says Hassan, still pondering his next move. All this watching of the pornography? If I successfully defend my dissertation, yes, says Sanjita. Ah, says Hassan, arms raised in bewilderment. Only in America. America, agrees Orhan, who in between moves works on a batch, of ricotta turnovers. And the other thing, continues Sanjita, is that, curiously, the food item initiating the carnal encounter is always pizza, never gyros, never pad thai, never 14 inches of throbbing knockwurst, always pizza. What's wrong with pizza, says Hassan? This pornography, it is very low budget, yes? Probably the cast, the crew, they eat the pizza after filming. Bread, meat, cheese, vegetables. It is their dinner. Turkish pizza is very good, says Orhan, in a rare moment of loquaciousness. In Istanbul, I ate it many times as a child. We call it lahamajun. When I think of it, it makes me cry. Sanjita, who discovered Hassan's late in Essie's sophomore year, took an immediate shine to Essie, even though Essie kept trying to pressure Sanjita into trying on a pair of flared Brazilian jeans. Most likely, the instant attraction was due to Essie's winglessness, which Sanjita finds extremely fascinating, almost on par with narrative conventions in hardcore pornography and their socio-psychological implications. In West Bengal, where Sanjita's parents are from, 
It was common, before government reforms, for girls in rural areas who failed to grow wings by their twelfth year to be banished to live in squalor with the untouchables, as wingless girls were considered to be cursed and impure, causing crops to die, fields to fall fallow, infants to be born with webbed feet, talons, horns. For the most part, this practice has been discontinued, but in certain areas, the Bengali government still finds it to be a problem, and it must educate villagers of the illegality of such an act by posting signs and distributing leaflets. Keep your wingless daughters, say the leaflets of one such ad campaign. Don't let them live in squalor and in shame. Back home at Bellissima Vias, Essie's mother sits on the couch, watching TV, personal ads and supermarket coupons resting on her lap. On the TV, a local news reporter interviews a doctor who has pioneered an experimental treatment for girls who are unable to grow wings, and Essie's mom watches raptly. Our initial findings, says the doctor, who radiates charisma and professionalism behind his medical journal-covered desk, show that 50% of patients who undergo this treatment will develop wings within three months, and as many as 80% will develop wings within a year. There is a quick cut to the reporter who speaks from inside a high school. And that should come as good news to girls like 14-year-old Yesenia, says the reporter, strolling with a microphone through the hall, who thus far have had to brave the emotional and social upheaval of adolescence, wingless. Kids make fun of me, says Yesenia, sitting in a cushioned chair in what appears to be the student lounge. They tease me. They call me names. And what do they call you, says the reporter, bringing a hand to his impressive broadcaster's chin as a display of empathy. They call me the emu, she says, because emus can't fly. Prince Charming, says a personal ad, resting on Essie's mom's lap, seeks fairy princess for romantic dinners, movies, long walks, light typing, filing, alphabetizing, other clerical duties as assigned. The day Essie's anonymity ends is the day the Penguin Girl gets donated to the victims of Hurricane Katrina. In Essie's school's front entrance, there is a large donation bin for students to deposit canned goods, clothing, diapers, flashlights, personal hygiene kits, all bound for affected regions of Louisiana and Mississippi. One day, Essie passes by, on her way to advanced trigonometry, and witnesses four boys from her 11th grade English class carry the penguin girl to the box's mouth and dump her inside. The other passers-by laugh. Some continue on to class, others hang around and squawk, but not Essie. She is furious. She forgets her scholastic vow of silence, forgets her hard-fought obscurity, and after two years of standing by in the shadows while her classmates torment the penguin girl in the halls, bathrooms, and cafeteria, she lays into the four boys, as well as the squawking bystanders, spewing profanities in English, Spanish, and even a few in Farsi she picked up from Hassan. At first, everyone is stunned. The squawking stops, foot traffic freezes, 
But then the boys take note of her winglessness, realize she's that weird girl who never talks in 11th grade English, and they laugh at her, call her Ugly Duckling. Ugly Duckling. Ugly Duckling. The boys have everyone in the hallway chanting, even when a hall monitor arrives and yells at everyone to get to class. Ugly Duckling. As Essie walks to the Katrina donation bin, ugly duckling as she extends her hand, ugly duckling as she says Bolita to the penguin girl, who now recognizes this as being her name. After Hurricane Katrina, Essie's life at school quickly sours. In the hallways, students quack. In the bathrooms, Girls write raunchy declarative sentences starting with her name. In 11th grade English, the boys return her peer-reviewed essays with extensive comments and red pen, indicating she and the penguin girl are lesbian lovers. Essie has always been a good, although quiet and non-participatory, student, but her test scores start to drop. Her grades slide, and when she brings home a progress report with a handful of C's, her mom grounds her, which is purely symbolic since Essie never leaves the house at night anyway. Essie argues, storms to her room, slams the door, and as muffled sobs leak through the thin walls, her mother shakes her head and gets ready for a date. Tonight's date is someone she met online, dollar sign ampersand asterisk, who is purportedly a W-E-S-W-M-N-S-N-K-N-D-I-S-O-B-B-W-F-W-B, although Essie's mother has absolutely no idea what this means. As school becomes more and more excruciating, as Essie's grades slip, as the bathroom messages multiply, as the hallway quacking increases in duration and volume, Hassan's, more than ever, becomes Essie's one refuge. She pours her heart out to Sanjida. She watches Hassan and Orhan play backgammon. She shares day-old pastries and stock tips with Charles and Winston. But even here, in the sanctuary of Brazilian genes and artificial limbs, she is not entirely safe. A customer enters. Her wings are beautiful. They are a deep green with complimentary black trim. Hassan interrupts his backgammon to give her the once-over. The customer wants Brazilian jeans, embroidered, and asks Essie what she has in a size 14. Essie says the highest they go up to is a 12. The customer says that's ridiculous. Half the people she knows were higher than a 12. Essie says she's sorry. She understands, but the store's customers tend to be on the skinny side. She recommends looking for 14 online. The customer doesn't want to look online. She says she bets she can squeeze into a 12. Essie explains that this is not a wise idea, that she should find something in her own size, but this is not what the customer wants to hear. Just give me the damn 12, she says. Essie feels for the woman. After all, she herself is too big to fit into any of the jeans that she sells, but what can she do? She tries to explain to the customer, as gently as possible, that squeezing into too tight jeans will not be comfortable, will not be flattering, will not be attractive. The customer looks her in the eye. What do you know, you stupid bitch, she says. 
You don't even have any wings. On the bus ride home, Essie stares out the window at the billboards. The women are beautiful on the billboards. They sell perfume, cologne, hair products. They sell luxury automobiles and carbonated drinks. There is no limit to what they can glamour, what they can eroticize, no product they can't imbue with sex, provocation, intrigue. On one billboard, a svelte model in a swimsuit ogles a state-of-the-art home security alarm system. In another, a barely legal co-ed caresses the superimposed logo of a federally insured credit union. And their wings, of course, are also beautiful. Fiery reds, iridescent blues, deep forest greens, gauzy, shimmery, perfect. Essie changes buses, and right there, on the side of the bus, is the latest Mrs. Freshident, urging the purchase of teeth whitening toothpaste, her blue wings glittering like the ocean at sunset. Essie arrives home, enters her apartment, and finds her mother on the couch, scanning the personals, clipping coupons. Her mother looks up, says, why the long face? Essie doesn't answer. She heads for her room. Essie's mother returns to her personals, her supermarket savings, then remembers something. By the way, Essie's mother says, raising her voice so Essie can hear, I made you an appointment with that doctor from television, the one who helps girls grow their wings, Monday after school. Remember to tell Hassan to let you off of work. He'll take the 104 bus. Essie stops. She walks back into the living room. She walks over to the couch, stands before her mother, tries to speak, but no words come out. Her mother says, don't worry. She says, baby, come here. Essie sits down on the couch, on the personal ads and the coupons, and her mother holds her, holds her and rocks her, as if she were still just a small child. Mr. Wright, says a personal ad, beneath Essie's jeans, seeks Miss Wright, or Miss could be worse, or Miss good as I'm gonna get. Really, anyone, seeks anyone, anyone at all. Essie sits in the office of the charisma-radiating doctor from television. The doctor sits behind his desk in an expensive-looking leather chair. The doctor has gray hair and a white jacket and a prized collection of dense medical journals signed by their respective editors-in-chief and occasionally the chairs of their oversight committees. The most valuable is the Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism, Volume 24, Issue 7, which contains the last peer-reviewed article Bad Boy Neurologist Dr. Mitsuyoshi Nakamura ever wrote about cerebrovascular physiology prior to his untimely death. The journal is framed and hung on the wall next to portraits of the doctor's wife and infant son. The treatment is really quite straightforward, says the doctor, whose office's walls are plastered with anatomical cross-sections of women's wings. You take a cocktail of three drugs, once in the morning, once in the evening, and check in with us once a month so we can monitor your progress. And it'll take me three months to grow wings, says Essie. 
There's about a 50% chance of that, yes, says the doctor. For some patients, it takes longer. For others, it doesn't work at all. And what about side effects? The doctor pauses, folds his hands. Some patients experience nausea, he says. Others complain of dry mouth. Others, after taking the drug, have periodic hallucinations in which they believe they are either Nobel Prize-winning physicist Niels Bohr or outlaw country music legend Wailing Jennings, or some combination of the two. These patients complain of the unsolved mysteries of quantum mechanics, of another good woman done gone wrong. But the most unusual side effect associated with the drug, the one that tends to capture the imagination of the pharmacologists and the FDA reviewers, is a normally rare condition called acute neuroaural psychosis, in which the patient believes that all songs performed by their original composers are in fact cover versions, regardless of any evidence pointing to the contrary. That doesn't sound so bad, says Essie. No, not on the surface, says the doctor, but think about it. Let's say you're married. You're having dinner with your husband at a casual restaurant, let's say Serbo-Croat Steakhouse, and you hear, over the restaurant speakers, Hotel California by the Eagles. It's clearly the original studio version from 1977, the familiar guitar intro, Don Henley's husky vocals, the epic harmonized solo by Joe Walsh and Don Felder at the end, but you swear it's a cover version. Who is this, honey, you say to your husband, and he says, are you kidding me? It's the Eagles, sweetheart. You roll your eyes. I know the Eagles wrote this song, but who's performing it, you say? Who's covering it? Your husband stares at you, incredulous. You've got to be joking, he says. You indicate that you are not. You both argue through the appetizers, the entrees, many alcoholic drinks, dessert, your husband claiming it's the Eagles, you claiming it's not. And by the time the check arrives, you're screaming at each other, slamming your fists on the table, rattling the dishes and silverware. Conversations stop. Patrons stare. The evening is ruined. But it doesn't stop there. The next day, at work, you wonder, what sort of man have I married who would swear upon his life all night that what is clearly a cover version of Hotel California is actually the original version? And meanwhile, your husband wonders, what sort of woman have I married who cannot recognize the distinctive vocal stylings of Don Henley, the tasteful musical interplay of Don Felder and Joe Walsh, the most well-known harmonized guitar outro in all of recorded music. From there on, it's all downhill. You argue constantly. You hurl accusations. All trust is broken. You go to Serbo-Croat Steakhouse, hear Piano Man by Billy Joel, and say, now I bet you'll tell me that this is actually Billy Joel. And when your husband says that indeed it is, you smash your plate of Balkan blossoms on the floor in an uncontainable rage and storm out. Separation ensues, then the acquisition of lawyers, then divorce. In the elevator of the courthouse, you hear, against all odds, parenthesis, take a look at me now, by Phil Collins. Your lawyer says, don't you just love Phil Collins? 
and you scream all the way down to the lobby. Of course, we see this in only a small fraction of patients, but it is certainly something to consider. Essie considers it. She also considers two more years of high school wingless. She considers being quacked at in the halls, maligned in the bathrooms, donated to the victims of hurricanes. She considers boys who won't look at her, boys who won't give her the time of day, boys who won't stop libeling her in 11th grade English. She considers riding on the bus, staring at the billboards, seeing all those women with their perfect wings telling her to buy soft drinks, power tools, ribbed condoms, real estate in North Carolina. She considers seeing these same women, same wings, on television, in movies, in newspapers, magazines, coupon inserts, on buses, bus stops, garbage cans, 10 feet tall over rush hour traffic, 20 feet tall on the sides of buildings, completely inescapable, even when she closes her eyes, beautiful, iridescent, fluttering and flapping in her dreams. She considers it. She makes her decision. I don't care about the side effects, she says. I want this. I'm willing to risk it. Please, give them to me. Please give me the drugs. of milk. Her college fund is put on hold, all of her earnings from Hassan's going to her pink and white and yellow pills, but she doesn't mind. Her eye is on the prize. The wings are worth it. Also, she experiences some nausea, lethargy, dizziness, joint pain, but she keeps it to herself. She doesn't want her mother to worry, to jeopardize the continuation of the treatment. Once her wings are fully grown, she can discontinue the pills, and she will feel healthy again. Three months. Three months is nothing. She can last three more months. The side effects worsen. At school, as he blacks out for large chunks of her lectures, one minute she is learning about the Gettysburg Address, 
four score and seven years ago, a new nation conceived in liberty, all men created equal. And the next thing she knows, it's post-reconstruction, Jim Crow, lynch mobs, the Klan. At home, she's unable to eat her mother's spicy goulash, or kielbasa, or ground beef pierogi. Instead, nibbles on saltines, oyster crackers, wheat thins, tells her mother she's just dieting, loses so much weight she can finally fit into Hassan's jeans. And at Hassan's, she often grows faint while describing the cotton and lycra weave of the Moletone jeans fabric, the one-year warranties of the myoelectric prosthetic hands, and has to excuse herself from her customers and hole up in the restroom, curled up in a ball on the floor and waiting for her latest bout of vertigo to pass. But she soldiers on. She is not discouraged. She knows the wings are coming soon. Besides, there are good days, days when school is uninterrupted by blackouts, when she can eat all the kielbasa she wants, when her three work hours at Hassan's go by like a breeze, thanks to the always entertaining banter between her employer and her favorite gender and sexuality studies PhD candidate. Today is one of those days. The sun is shining. Hassan is winning at backgammon. Sanjita enjoys a pistachio baklava. The homeless men read the Wall Street Journal. The Dow and the Nasdaq are up. So Hassan, says Sanjita, leaning against the pastry counter, doing serious damage to her pistachio baklava, there's something I've been meaning to ask you for some time. Ask away, my dear, says Hassan pleasantly. Orhan makes his move, and Hassan smashes an Armenian pastry and calls Orhan a filthy dog. Why is it, says Sanjita, that your store sells Brazilian jeans and artificial limbs and pastries? Hassan glares at Orhan. A good question, he says, wiping the pastry filling off his hand with a napkin. Let me start from the beginning. Back in Iran, I sold artificial limbs, so when I came to America, after the revolution, naturally I did the same. Business was fine, people are always needing an arm, a leg, no problem there. But the thing is, there are these women, beautiful women, walking by my store all the time, out on the street, and they never come in. They have their arms, they have their legs, what good am I to them, understand? But these women, they are so beautiful, from South America, Central America, Europe, the Caribbean, and they are wearing almost no clothing. I cannot believe it. In my country, they take a woman like this and they throw a shutter over her, cover her face, her shape, her beautiful wings, forbid her to fly, to flap, 74 lashes for fluttering, 100 lashes for hovering, and why? Because Allah wills it? Because it says so in the Quran? Why would Allah make woman his most beautiful creation and forbid us to look at her? It is an outrage. It is an imprisonment of beauty. It could be argued, says Sanjita, cutting him off, that particularly in Western culture, where women are hypersexualized in the media, reduced by advertising to a pair of wings and a pair of breasts, wearing the chudder, the Islamic robe, the veil, 
actually frees a woman, forces us to consider her mind rather than her body, saves Muslim women from marginalization, from harassment, from sexual exploitation. Oh, you modern women, laughs Hassan, clutching his ample belly. How can I love you so much, but understand you so little? Finish the story, Hassan, says Essie from the prosthetic arms. Right. So I see all these beautiful women with their arms and their legs, and I think to myself, how do I get them to come into my store? Well, I need to sell them something they want. And what do they want? Brazilian jeans. Low cut. Sexy. Stretchy material. Comfortable. Looks good on all shapes. Flattens the tummy. Great for the curves. I put a rack of Brazilian jeans next to the artificial limbs, and suddenly I can't keep the women out of my store. It is a miracle. It is a marvel. It is a blessing from God. And the pastries, says Sanjita. Pastries, says Hassan, as if the answer were self-evident. Well, what good is life without pastries? The side effects get really bad. Essie has to skip entire classes. She has to call in sick to work. She tells her mother she has a virus, stays home, in bed, her room spinning around her, but she keeps taking the pills. Three in the morning, three at night, washed down with orange juice, with an ice-cold glass of milk. One day Essie tries to return to school. She takes the bus, looks out the window at the billboards, at the women and their beautiful wings, which she, too, will soon have. She gets off the bus, approaches the school entrance, and everything is still wobbly, in jagged motion, as if she were still in public transit over potholes, loose gravel, uneven terrain. Essie enters the school. The hurricane donation bins are gone. Presumably, the Katrina victims are now safe and sound. Essie's first class is American history on the third floor, and she gingerly ascends the stairs. A few of the boys from 11th grade English spot her, and they cup hands over their mouths and quack. The stairs are very crowded, the school is 300 students over capacity, and the presence of so many laughing, shouting, quacking bodies makes Essie's surroundings wobble even more, start to spin round and round until she's not sure if she's climbing up the stairs or down. She grabs the handrail. The stairs and students spin. The quacking grows louder, 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 then cuts abruptly as Essie lets go of the handrail and her legs and her vision go out. Essie wakes up on the second floor landing on her back. There are paramedics and a large crowd of students that school administrators keep shouting at to get to class. A paramedic observes that Essie is awake and asks her a question, but she is too groggy to understand. She instead focuses on a sound coming from the crowd of students, music, she determines, as her senses return to her, spilling out loudly from a student's earphones. The music is familiar, and yet not. The paramedic asks Essie another question, but Essie ignores it. The music, she says, that's Thriller, isn't it? The paramedic, middle-aged, quits checking her vital functions and listens. He tells her that yes, 
Indeed, it is Thriller. He asks Essie another question, but she is too absorbed in the music to notice. I've never heard this version before, she says. Gloved hands attend to her, surround her. Who's performing it? The paramedic gives her an odd look. Um, Michael Jackson, he says, as if the answer were obvious. That's funny, says Essie, as the gloved hands secure her onto a stretcher. Doesn't sound like him at all. Essie suffers a broken arm and a concussion in the fall. She returns to school a few days later with a slight limp and a pink cast. At the hospital, she admits to her mother about the worsening side effects, and when she returns home, her mother takes her pills and dumps them in the garbage. Pink, then white, then yellow, tying up the trash bag, carrying it silently outside. Essie doesn't protest. She doesn't say a word. Still groggy from pain medication, she instead goes to her room as her mother takes the trash bag past the gossiping abuelas to the Bellissima Villas dumpster and stares, motionless, at her baby blue ceiling, clearing her mind of thoughts, giving in to chemical stupor. And by the time her mother has returned, empty-handed, Essie is fast asleep, lost in fantasy, dreaming the following dream. In the dream, Essie is on the sidewalk, outside Hassan's artificial limbs, Brazilian jeans, and pastries. Charles, the homeless man, is there, but his constant companion, Winston, is not. Winston is not there, Charles explains, because he is in the hospital, because he tried to kill himself. But Essie does not believe Charles. She says, where is Winston? She has a sweet roll for him. It is still warm. It is still sweet-smelling in her paper bag. Charles explains that Winston tried to kill himself because of his fantasy stock market investments. It came out in the Wall Street Journal that day that the majority of his investments had fallen victim to a decades-concealed, multi-billion-dollar Ponzi scheme had been backed all along by non-existent collateral and bonds and were now worthless. He had lost everything. He was completely ruined. As he says, she doesn't understand. She says, but it's the fantasy stock market. He didn't actually buy anything. It's just a game, a pastime. He doesn't have anything to lose. Charles digs his hand into her bag, pulls out a sweet roll. He says, now that's where you're wrong. Imagine, he says, every day for 15 years, Winston checks the stock tables in the Wall Street Journal. Fantasy stocks, his stocks, his babies. This is his life. Other than that, what else has he got? A curb littered with cigarette butts. A filthy storefront where he spends the night. He envisions, as he watches his stocks grow, mature, a family, doting lovely wife, charming athletic daughter, son who plays the piano, the contrabass, the bassoon, and as he sleeps, he can see them sleep, imagines peering into his daughter's room, his son's room, watching them snug and secure beneath their heavy blankets, their Ivy League futures assured by his shrewdly managed portfolio, before returning to his peaceful, dreaming wife, 
her retirement hinging on the profit margins of semiconductor companies, her diaphragm rising and falling beneath his hand. His stocks continue to perform well, double, triple in value, and his children grow up. Intel gains three points, his daughter attends junior prom, Texas Instruments gains two points, his son becomes a man. As he checks the quotes, runs his hands over the newsprint, smudging the ink, soiling his fingers, he sees his daughter score goal after goal for her soccer team, sees his son perform Shostakovich's Piano Concerto No. 2 with his high school's symphony orchestra. This is all real to him, understand? The curb, sleeping in front of a storefront, that is what's false. How could anyone ever live like that? He is a rich man, growing exponentially richer every day. Until today, says Essie. Right, says Charles. Until today. So you can imagine, when he sees his investments are now worthless, that not only is college impossible, early retirement, annual vacations to European capitals and breathtaking tours of the Austrian Alps, but also mortgage payments, car payments, the credit required for life as he now knows it. He can't face the thought of telling his lovely wife, his state champ daughter, his virtuoso son, that he has failed them, that he has gambled away their dreams, that his greed for more, more, higher risk, higher return, junk bonds, black gold, etc., has left his family penniless, homeless, destitute. He imagines their paralyzed faces. He imagines their tears, their desperation. He imagines their questions, so many questions he will not or cannot answer. And so he doesn't face them. Instead, he finds a piece of broken glass, and I find him on First Street, his wrists painting the pavement red. Essie wakes up. She is sweating breathing hard. Within seconds, all memory of the dream has vanished. She remembers nothing. She lowers her head back onto the pillow and falls back asleep. This time, she dreams of flying, floating effortlessly in a clear blue sky. When she wakes, she will not remember this dream, either. She never does. Awake, she honestly believes that since childhood, she has lost the ability to dream. The next week, Essie returns to Hassan's. Hassan, Orhan, Sanjita, and the homeless men are waiting for her with balloons, noisemakers, and an extravagant Orhan baked cake. Sanjita informs Hassan and Orhan that in America, it's customary for the sufferers of broken bones to have their friends sign their casts, and so each of the three, plus the homeless men, take turns inking their names and a brief message of healing and goodwill on Essie's pink arm. Sanjita writes, get well soon. Orhan writes something in Turkish. The homeless men paraphrase D.H. Lawrence and Rudyard Kipling. Hassan writes, praises be to God that you are back then tells Essie to repose the prosthetic limbs with her one good arm, as best she can. An hour goes by, customers coming in and out, 
gorgeous Latinas in search of moletone, U.S. infantry in search of arms and legs, and Essie helps them, selects just the perfect cut, the perfect style, the perfect metal alloy. During lulls in patronage, Essie enjoys Orhan's cake, a yogurt cake, smooth and creamy, with a hint of lemon, and meanwhile, the homeless men check the stock tables. Hassan and Orhan attend to their backgammon. Sanjita updates the bibliography for her dissertation, which includes such titles as Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half Inches, Hannah and Her Sisters and a Pizza Delivery Man, a streetcar named Do Me Right Here on the kitchen table. The days go by. Essie goes to school, goes to work, goes home. At school, the students still quack, still throw pieces of bread in the cafeteria, still leave piles of rubber duckies in front of Essie's locker, but Essie does her best to ignore them. Her grades improve. She earns A's and B's on her report card. In two years, she'll be going to college. Two years is nothing. She can last two more years. Essie comes home. The gossiping abuelas inform her of their diligence in praying to the saints and the blessed virgins for her wings. Essie tells them, don't bother. She says, don't waste the wax. Essie's mother keeps clipping coupons, keeps checking the personals, goes on dates, has her heart broken, tries again. Renaissance man seeks Renaissance woman, says a personal, must enjoy jousting, archery, drought ale, madrigals, the loot. Essie sells jeans. She sells prosthetic arms, legs, hands. Into the store come models, telenovela actresses, clubgoers, chongas, quinceañeras, and also amputees, car accident victims, cancer survivors, veterans of foreign wars. She explains the unique cotton and lycra weave of the fabric. She explains the battery operation of the myoelectric prosthetic hands. She helps customers select the right size, the right fashion, points her one good arm toward the dressing room, or she helps select the right model, the right material, and removes a sample prosthesis from the wall. The customers disappear behind the dressing room, and Essie waits. They hold the prostheses in negative space, and Essie waits. The penguin girl walks in, tries on a pair of Brazilian jeans, embroidered, grommet belt, flared at the leg, and Essie waits. They emerge from the dressing room. They walk, wheel, limp to the mirror. Essie stands beside them, all of them, the models, the amputees, the penguin girl, and smiles. See, she says, her reflection side by side with her own. See, you are beautiful.
and lie down with you Because I need the space that says to me that I'm in Filling up the water and the salt Nothing ever cooks when you sit and it boils Nuance in the face of all I don't ever that face cry tears that dry out Lacking top and vision number one I can't really wait until I see the sun Face off.